job this morning, exalting God, and thank you, Kevin, for leading us in a powerful prayer and pointing us right to Christ. Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. Everybody doing all right? As far as you can tell, right? Just before I jump into my text this morning, um, we will have our traditional share service, Thanksgiving share service on November 20th. So it's not too soon to let me know if you would like to share a testimony, a story, or how God's working in your life, um, uh, just a testimony of gratitude. So I would appreciate if you would just bring that before the Lord. God, is there any way I can serve you in this area? And then let me know. Um, That's on November 20th. Also, we will have our traditional hanging of the green service on the 27th. So um, you just arrive at the regular time, I believe, and and we'll, uh, rather than having our traditional message, we will decorate the church and read the Christmas story or scriptures revolving around the Christmas story. So that's the 27th. And um, so if, if you've been involved with that or you think you might be involved with that, make sure you contact the proper people to put everything in place. That's also the day of um, the first advent. First advent is November 27th. So lots going on in this season. Well, there's lots going on in the Corinthian church, and we are in our final chapter and some of our final verses. And after this message, there's three more messages, and we will have completed this book. This morning we completed the book of Galatians since January, began in January 2020. Um, I began this approximately 46 Sundays ago. This is the 46th. Now, there's been lots of uh, communion Sundays and so forth, but it's been a little while. So there's three more sermons after this sermon, and we will complete our book. Uh, the Apostle Paul, we, you know, in reading his inspired writings, we've learned much about the church, especially in these final chapters and the importance of the health of the church and the importance of maintaining the purity of the church. And what we've learned that in order to maintain health and peace and order in a church, uh, there has to be things set in place. There has to be order and, and discipline in order for there to be levels of order and discipline. People have to be put in authority keep the peace, to keep the order, and to administer the discipline. And so we've been learning that about Corinthians and how important it is um, to God that his church, his people remain pure and remain the witness that they are intended to be to a lost and dying world. And so God, as he created the world, he created institutions, and in those institutions are levels of authority to enforce his peace and order and to service purpose. We have, we have the church, we have state or the government, and we have the family. In all of these institutions, God has established authorities, levels of authority. Uh, we learn in this book, and also referring to Jesus' teaching in Matthew, that uh, the, the first line of authority is you. We are to govern ourselves. It's a, it's a top-down system. We're to govern ourselves. We're to keep ourselves in check. 
We're, we're responsible to obey God within our own hearts, within our own minds. And it's a mark of maturity not to have people always having to correct you and bring you back on the path. Because it is our responsibility as individuals to govern ourselves. So we have the authority and the responsibility to do that. But within the church, if that fails, and we all need help, and God establishes the body of Christ, so there are others in the church to help us along. And Matthew instructs us to go to people that are struggling with sin because sin is a dangerous thing, to go to them with the goal always of restoration. So we can go to our family, we go to our close friends for help to overcome struggles, to remain pure and to remain healthy. And there are times when even that doesn't work. And there are times where we have to bring in, say, bigger guns, so to speak, to hold people accountable. And it can go all the way up to the level of what we would consider church discipline, where the authorities of the church say, if you refuse to repent in order to preserve the peace, the purity, and the witness of the church, we're going to have to ask you to remove yourself. You're no longer living a life of faith in Christ. You're living as if you were in the world. And so we learn that there's a whole exchanging of hands in that process, actually. There's, there's, God has given the church a level of authority and divine power to fulfill his purposes and enforce his will. Just as a way of reference, in Matthew 16, 17 through 19, let me read this. Jesus answered when he's talking to, um, to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We know that the keys uh, that are given is the gospel. That's how you get into heaven. You put your faith in Christ. The gospel message saves us. We do that. There's also this level of authority and power that, is, that God has invested in the church to the point where heaven and earth uh, actually work together sometimes. The, the church on earth and, and the powers in heaven, God in heaven, what is loosed and bound is enforced by God. So there's, this, there's a, a spiritual element to church authority. There's a spiritual element to God desiring to restore sinners back to himself. And he uses, of course, the church, the body of Christ. He uses you and I to do that in each other's lives. So it starts at the bottom, and then we have different levels of maturity. But every individual and every institution is accountable to live for God. We are all accountable to obey God. That's what's so uh, not just practical, but I but divine about God's system and the institutions is that it's, there are all lots of working parts that agree, that should agree, that work best when God is in his proper place. So we, we really, at every level, work with each other for the same purpose. And even those in the greatest uh, places of authority are accountable to the same God that I am, in the same way that I am. So God is just so wise in the way that he has constructed things. Now, 
we also examined reasons why we resist authority. It sounds great, but we resist it because, first of all, our sinful nature, we like to serve ourselves. We're fallen in sin. We're, 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 we're depraved. And so we think the answer isn't up there, but we think the answers are just right here in my own heart, in my own mind, and I, I know what's best for myself. And so we live in a cult. So, so personally, we make our own rules. But another reason that uh, we rebel is because our culture is a whole philosophy, really, of rebellion and rejecting God. It's in our schools, it's in our media, it's everywhere that we are not accountable to anything higher than ourselves. That we make our own rules. The whole cancel culture is just a a system of people like fads making their own rules about what's right and wrong. And now all of a sudden you got to enforce them and people are finding themselves like, who changed the, the boundaries, who changed the line here? How come nobody likes me anymore? Well, because we changed the rules and you have to act this way and we're enforcing these rules. So we live in this culture that just rejects God. We're left to our own wisdom and our own ways to try to make our way and it's sad. It's, it's leaving us in quite a mess. You don't have all the pieces working together in harmony to uh, achieve the same goal. We've all been given permission to have our own little kingdoms. We all get to decide what's true for us, uh, what's real for us. We can be whatever we decide to be. So the idea, a prevailing idea of humanity is that we are best served when we are the freest. Everybody gets out of our way and we can do whatever we want. That will never work. It will only get worse as long as we hold on to that because you can't have so many conflicting kingdoms that get their own way without bumping into each other, people getting mad and aggressive. And we see that in our culture. So the world, yeah, the world is, is a mess. It'll be that way of sorts until Christ returns. He's informed his church people that that's true. He's informed us that there's going to be just certain things that stay with us until he returns. There will be things that change. And you know, in this messy world, that we like to complain about and shake our heads about. God has blessed this world with a, a tool or an institution to mitigate the mess, and that's the church. That's you and I. So it's, it's Christ through us that is an answer to the mess that people who reject God make, that we make when we veer from the Lord. We learned in this book that God, if you ever wonder what he's doing, he is reconciling the world to himself through his son Jesus Christ. And he uses us as unworthy as we are as his instruments to to witness and demonstrate his the hope that we have that there is a God that he will say that he does forgive. And all of that comes through the church. It's a wonderful, beautiful, humbling thing to be a part of the body of Christ. So we have learned a lot about the importance of the church and and even the divine power level of authority and so forth that God gives the church. 
In this final chapter, Paul has threatened to use that authority. He's threatened to use that power. You know, he used the word even the church, like it can get up to this level where even the church, you don't want it to get to the level where the church authorities have to deal with things, but he has threatened the Corinthian church. If you, the individuals that are in the degree of sin that would call for church discipline, if you fail to repent, I'm going to come and I will spare none of you. With the church discipline, so there would be a changing of hands from the, the spiritual realms where people are put back into the hands of the world or Satan, so to speak, and taken out away from the warmth of, of God and his love and his peace. So there's a lot of power talking, um, a lot of talk about power going around. But today, we're going to switch gears a little bit and see another way that God uses his power and it's in a sense it's opposite because there is this great strength and authority that God and and power that God gives to certain people at certain levels and times but there's also a power not in strength but a power in weakness and we should pay careful attention I think to this because most of us will be used by God in this mode that is being used by God through our weaknesses. Not, not everyone's going to great, uh, get to be a great figure or level of authority. But every believer will be used by God on this level. So in the church you have power under strength and you have power under weakness. God displays both. So let's look at our text this morning. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Last time we'll read these verses for I don't know how long, maybe a long time. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Now, you know that the Corinthian church, unfortunately, they have been, they've been struggling. Uh, they're guilty of what many of us have been guilty of at one point of or another. And that is misunderstanding the relationship between power and weakness. Uh, false teachers came in. They undermined Paul. Uh, they, they highlighted all of his weaknesses. Um, even his spiritual strengths were made to look as if He's a loser. He doesn't have anything important to say. He works with his hands. He's not one of us. He's not great in any way. Uh, He he lacks so many different things. And the world often looks for nothing but strength, nothing but competence, nothing but power. The last thing we want or the last person we want on our team or our club, or whatever, or whatever it is, is, is the weak person. It's not at all held in any kind of esteem. So the apostles, these false teachers came in, made the Apostle Paul look weak, and he is just throwing out some warnings here. And, and one of this is that don't confuse, when it comes to the kingdom of God and the church, don't confuse weakness with as something that cannot be used in a powerful way in the kingdom of God. So our natural tendency 
is to not to want to be associated with weakness. Makes us look bad. Has to do with our pride. Has to do with us wanting to look great in the eyes of others. It doesn't take long for us as we pilgrim through this world to realize that's kind of the system of the world. The Apostle Paul has strengths. But most of his strengths are what God worked in him, what we would consider spiritual strengths. But the fact of the matter is Paul, as an individual, was really not an impressive figure. Uh, He confesses this about himself. He describes himself. He says, I'm I'm not the best orator. I'm a speaker and and I'll preach anywhere, but I'm not exactly great at it. I'm not as articulate as many are. Now, of course, he's very, very smart. We know that. But he also had uh, physical ailments. And a lot of those physical ailments were probably as a result of the beatings that he received in carrying the gospel throughout the Middle East. I mean, Corky recited a few of them this morning. He had a hard life when he says, I'm crucified for Christ. I don't live for myself. And so in his obedient life to Christ, it took him to really hard places and near-death experiences, many of them. He is not afraid to talk about not just his physical ailments, but his internal weaknesses. He never claims to be this perfect person. He, he never claims that God chose me because of what I brought to the table, because of my credentials. He freely talks about his, his shortcomings. Our tendency is to be narrow-minded in our assessment of people because of this. Let me read a very, a very popular scripture that's very powerful. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. So he's, we're learning something here. God sees one way, but our tendency as man is to see another way. What is it? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And unfortunately, we habitually fall for this time and time again, even when we are well-meaning. We just can't, almost can't help ourselves to fall for the external things and fail to take the time to understand <clears throat> the heart. It's, it's a, a amusing and sometimes comical to me how important this is to the world that we live in, that we look good, that we look great. Appearance is so incredibly important. And something else that is so important, way overemphasized in our culture, is confidence. Confidence. It is so important that you see yourself as a confident person, you talk about yourself, all your great things, and it's important for everybody else to see you as some kind of great figure and to only speak great things, encouraging things into your life. It's, it's a pandemic of overconfidence is what it is. And it's taught to us at very, very young age. So very familiar phrases in our culture today are, you got this. There's not negative. 
It's you got this. You killed it. You're awesome. You rock. All of these things are meant to overcome the problem that we think we have. We think our problem is that we do not look at ourselves as greatly as we should, and neither do you. So we got to get the whole culture on board of convincing ourselves that we're great, having this confidence, so that we can be great. Uh, the problem is that it, that runs into reality. And our problem is not that we don't think highly enough of ourselves. The problem, Scripture says, is usually we think too highly of ourselves. It's kind of arrogant to even think that my problem and the reason I don't accomplish more is because I don't think I'm great enough. And now I want everybody on board to join me in that. And it turns into a lot of hype. And so we have a culture that actually values confidence more than actual competence. It's okay if you brag about yourself, even if you fail to deliver. It's expected. The reality of actually being able to back it up with true competence, well, yeah, I can do that. I got this because I've practiced or I'm a natural, whatever, I can back it up with competence. That's no longer highlighted in our culture, which is very, very sad. I don't, re, uh, I don't recall all the details, but I do remember reading an article, and I think I shared it in a sermon months ago. Um, and the study was done uh, probably a decade ago, and it was in Japan. And Japan invited other nations to come for this study, and it had something to do with confidence. And so they invited high school students, if I remember correctly, to test themselves uh, in academics. And they interviewed all of the different nations and all of the different people before they took the tests. And they, you know, they said, how do you think you're going to do? Well, the Americans were the most confident in their test taking before the test. They, oh, we, how am I going to do? I'm going to ace it. How do you think I'm going to do? And they were one of the lowest performers of the nations in this test. So we, we, we have this idea that the answer is to just think highly of ourselves, to, to, to put on airs, to put on this appearance of greatness, whether or not we can back it up. But see, reality, at some point, we have to be honest with ourselves and work with what we have and work with what we really are. Of course we can all get better. Of course we have different strengths. God created us that way. There are people that leave me in the dust in some things. There are people, hopefully, I can leave somebody in the dust in a few other things. Confidence alone will not change things. It has to be backed by actual competence. I get a tickle out of, uh, you know, we see this in sports. UFC, you get two fighters. Let me just tell you something. In the UFC, those two fighters, those opponents, do not lack confidence. They are absolutely sure they're going to win. So if they lose, it's not because they didn't lack confidence. They lost. There's only two of them. One of them's going to lose. Why? They were outskilled. They just didn't quite have, in reality, what it takes to be as great as they wanted to be. 
So that's why I think it's important to hear Paul when, when he, he, he's saying break out of this worldly mode of thinking about how you think about appearance and how you think about strengths and weaknesses and how it all plays out in the world that God created. He says he's not weak in dealing with you, but he's powerful among you, talking about God in verse 3. For he was crucified in weakness. Now we know he's talking about Christ. But he lives by the power of God. So there's, a, there's this weakness element to Christ. For we also are weak. So Paul's identifying me too. That's how God's working in me. It's the same way he worked in Christ. It's, it's a kingdom way of accomplishing his purpose. So Paul talks freely about his limitations. It might be off-putting to some. It might, might mean that he's not popular in some circles or areas. In the first chapter, we've gone through the whole book, but in the first chapter he starts talking about his afflictions. In chapter 2, he's filled with joy, and then he's in tears. In chapter 4, he's afflicted, and he calls himself, I'm just a jar of clay. I'm just flimsy. In chapter 6, he talks about his many hardships again. Chapter 7, he says that I'm facing facing affliction at every turn. I'm scared. There's, There's trials out there, but there's also trials going on in my own heart. Fights, battles. Chapter 8, he writes about more of his sorrows as well as more suffering. Chapter 10 again and chapter 11, 12, the same thing. And he says, in essence, I'm stressed out. There's just so many burdens. There's so much going on. There's so many things to think about. It's, it's difficult. He doesn't claim to be strong. He doesn't claim to be confident. He's telling us this is hard. And I really, when it gets right down to it, I don't even have what it takes. I don't even have what it takes to be doing what I'm doing right now. We hear this in chapter 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation that God gave him where he was taken up into the heavens. Very privileged thing that the Lord did in his life. To keep him from thinking too greatly of himself, the Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So it must be pretty important to God that we don't become conceited conceited three times i pleaded with the lord about this that it should leave me but he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness so now you start hearing things the way god works is nothing like we're taught in the world like all of a sudden weakness has a place all of a sudden like you're 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 hearing that uh no your weakness is um You may not like it, but I can really work incredible things in the world with your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, Apostle Paul says, of my weaknesses. He's not just talking about physical ailments. He's talking about shortcomings. There's things he's just not that good at. I'll boast all the more gladly of these so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses. When are you ever taught to be content with weaknesses in the world system? It's just like you're not even allowed to talk about it. 
I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do we teach our children that? Do we understand this as a principle, a kingdom principle in church? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear and much trembling. I know that feeling. I'm sure you know that feeling. You ever been asked to do something that you know you're probably going to look like a fool to do. You feel totally inadequate. And, and you're just shaken and nervous. And you're trying to think of any way you can to get out of it and escape. And he said, I'm obeying the Lord. And I came to you with the gospel. But man, I was just like a, a wet noodle. I was weak. I was shaking in my boots. I mean, I did it. I don't know how. And my speech. And so he's weak and fear trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men. So now we're starting to learn another aspect of how the kingdom works. Why would God use weak vessels that, to the eyes of the world, really are unimpressive? So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So now we see that it's possible for individuals to be present themselves as so great and grand that people are more attracted to them, to their personality, the power, than the, God, than the power of God. So th- this idea of weakness, this idea of lowliness becomes a very powerful instrument. It's a real picture of the world. And I know we're also taught evolution and survival of the fittest and We're doing the world a favor by just calling out the weak ones, those that are pulling us down, and we should only breed strength, and that's how we get better and better within ourselves and improve humanity. If if God didn't exist, that makes perfect sense, honestly. If God didn't exist, why not get rid of the weak? God does exist. And not only does he exist, but he uses the weak, and he can use the weak in a more powerful way then the world views strength. Clay pots. So I really appreciate this refreshing dose of honesty from the Apostle Paul. He's like, yeah, you know, man, I go to town and people don't like me. I get beat up, I get cast out, they throw things at me, they mock me, they tell, they speak lies about me. It's not a glamorous life. But in it all, in all that pain and affliction, I get to see God do things in me that I never would have imagined or seen. It's like I just keep going. I just keep sharing. I keep speaking. I keep obeying. And, and, and it's the power of God. Somewhere in there it picks up where I left off and we don't ever know where that starts and ends. But he just knows it's, it's God doing this in him. Now, this is a guy who freely talks about his weaknesses, but next to Jesus, I think, is probably the greatest preacher that ever lived. And talking to him probably one-on-one, you'd never know it. What's the secret to your greatness, Mr. Apostle? 
My greatness? Well, that'd be God. Because I have nothing in and of myself. We're weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. I'm weak, but Christ lives in me. It's all the power of God. So, it makes me kind of nervous, and it really should make you nervous to know that actually not being very good at some things makes us a, in some cases, a better medium, if you will, of the power of God to be displayed on earth because it's not about us. It's not about how great we are or how good we are. That's not, well, God did not create the world and put you in it so everybody leaves this world or comes in this world thinking, man, he or she was great. It's, it's, we're here to come into the world and leave the world thinking, man, whoa, he is great. And one of the ways he shows it is through our ability or inability to be great ourselves and yet do things in our hearts. Look to God. That's the greatness there. Whatever I've achieved, I've achieved in God. That's not the philosophy of the world. You know, it's so sad. The philosophy of the world, if if there's only place for greatness, then what happens to the people who in real life are weak? It's like you're already at the end of the rope. There's no place for you. You're either great or you're not. You're strong or you're not. You're confident or you're not. Where do you go? What do you do? And then you, you hear the philosophy of the kingdom of God, the wisdom of God, and it's like, oh, no, actually... You're feeling weak? You're kind of feeling like maybe even out of place? Whew. Do I have plans for you? Paul's weaknesses were despised by the world. They didn't care for him. He was mocked. And yet God accomplished greater things through him to the point where Paul kind of, he he begins to get how things work in the kingdom. He's like, oh, I'm actually going to boast about my weaknesses because that's where God is made. He says he's made perfect. He's made perfect in 12.9. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. God says, what does he mean? To say my power is made perfect, it means it, 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 it comes into being. It, it comes to fruition. My power actually comes into fruition and is fulfilled. My purpose is fulfilled and it's demonstrated through your weakness. So I'm made much of through human weakness. I'm actually often better known and rightly known through human weakness as opposed to human strength. So it's okay, right? doesn't mean, Paul and Thessalonians just say, strive to be even more excellent, and then even more excellent. So there's, there's a place, we always want to be growing and achieving, but, but there's a place for weaknesses where we've got to start somewhere here. There's no limits to God. It's okay that we have lots and lots of Limits. 
never about our greatness. I think about when did Paul learn, begin to learn this lesson? If you think about his, his life, he is so haughty and so zealous on the road with his papers, on the road to Damascus. And he is on a mission. And he's got permission from the, talk about levels of authority. He's got papers from the levels of authority, the Jewish leaders, to persecute the people of the way, the Christians. Oh, he is so excited to do harm to these vermin. And so he's probably pretty haughty, and, uh, and he's on this road here. And then his attitude has to change a little bit because in his haughtiness, he's cast to the ground. And he's blinded. And all of a sudden, the power that he may have felt and the, the great authority of the permission that he was granted to do harm to people, uh, he, he didn't get permission from God. God had a different plan for him. His gate chains, he's broken. He's knocked down into the dirt, into nothingness. Who are you now? And what God rose him, raised, raised him up to be his servant. Not haughty, but humble. That may have been his first lesson in, hmm, no, it's really not about me. So that's why I've entitled the sermon, Getting Out of the Way. I think Paul, in his journey of discipleship, all along these decisions he had to make, he had to learn to kind of get his ego, get his, himself. You know, I'm crucified with Christ. I don't live. Christ lives in me. He had to just, on a daily basis, learn to get himself out of the way. You know, it's okay if, if I don't shine when I serve the Lord in this way. I just have to get over myself and let God shine. That's what the world is all about. I must decrease he must increase wise words from John the Baptist. He, he understood the kingdom principle. It's all about the greatness of God, and he has every right to get it in any way he desires. Weakness is one of those ways. So it's a good thing to face up to our weaknesses. Let me close. Uh, I read a devotion by Alistair Begg who... Um, he quotes Second Chronicles 20, 20, 20, I'll read that to you. But in this passage, King Jehoshaphat, uh, he was a king of Judah. He was a good king. He was the one of the kings that brought reform to the people, brought God's law back into the forefront and obedience and a desire to serve God. But uh, king of Judah, but when Judah's enemies threatened them and surrounded them, Here's a king. Now he's in the highest place of authority. He's got power. He's up there on the level of it. But he realizes, ah, we're in trouble. We're surrounded. We are completely uh, overpowered by superior forces. And he's feeling, though he's been given this position as a king, he's feeling totally inadequate to save his people. So here's what he says. We are powerless against the great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Is that incredible? 
Like, we, I don't know what to do. He does know what to do. But he's saying, in, the, in this situation, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to uh, bring forth an outcome that's favorable at all. The only thing I do know to do is to look to you. And that's what he did. So it, th- this is a, a great man. He accomplished great things for the kingdom of Judah. He was an instrument of God. We're put in places where we're going we're gonna to be facing the same kind of things against the great horde in life. We're going to be put in places where we don't even know what to do. We can't even imagine a possible outcome that can, any good can come out of it. But we do know in this sense that we were created more to look to God than to win battles like that. Why? The story goes on. I can't, I'm just going to read some of it because it will, I think it will be refreshing. To, matter of fact, I'm going to read several verses. Meanwhile, so um, this is the, kind of the bigger story of that verse. And, and I'm still closing, by the way. We have not ended yet. <laughs> Meanwhile, all Judah, uh, Judah stood before the Lord. Now, this is real-life picture, okay? That's why I think I want to read it. It will encourage us. This really happened. People really did this. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones. With their little ones, their wives and their children, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, a Levite, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them, verse 16. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Go out against them with what? In my weakness. Just, just go. It's not about you. It doesn't matter how sharp your sword is in this case. How well you practice or how out of shape you are. Verse 18, then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord. Worshipping the Lord. Verse 22, and when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. God can multitask. He's loving the praise over here, but he's working over here with an ambush against the men that had come against Judah so that they were routed for the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. They were set in chaos. They killed one another. They destroyed one another. Judah didn't even have to raise her sword. You go against God. We see this in our world. We see it in our culture, in our nation. You go against God. You reject his ways. You reject his love. You reject his higher wisdom. And it results in, basically, we destroy ourselves. We kill ourselves one way or another. We might call it harmless. We might call it innocent. We might call it noble. 
One way or another, you reject God, we just self-destruct. So, you know, I don't know what, what God has called you to or, or what he will call you to. I don't know what goes on in your head or how you view yourself uh, this morning. I don't know how uh, you handle your struggles. I don't know how you see or handle your weaknesses or your strengths. But I do know that the best thing that we can do to glorify God is to, is to get those things out of the way and just live the life of faith where we walk in obedience. We take our weakness with us. We just take our weakness with us. And God does these things. So with a message like this, the reason I say it's, it's not safe is because um, messages like this tell us that God's going to ask us and call us out to do things that we are not going to like or feel comfortable in. And that's called a life of faith. That's called a life of a disciple. Now, there's going to be opportunities for you to serve this church family that God has brought into being in ways that you may shake your head. Do it. You can't escape them. Do it. So that God can be glorified. So that through our weaknesses we can make much of God. It is not about how well I've done up here. I don't want you to be. I know you're not. I don't, have, I don't struggle with that problem fortunately. To be so impressed with me that you forgot God was even in the building. My job is to point you to God. And, and your job is to point each other to God. In whatever capacity you can. To God be the glory and may God bless the preaching of his word.